worshiping with you here this morning. Glad that we could be together and worshiping. We're going to look into God's Word today. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and bring that out. We're going through the book of James, and we're in chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 13. And we're going to be looking at really this overview and and looking at what this actually looks like inside of our daily life to not just be listeners of the word, not just hear God's word, but to put it into practice. And what James keeps doing over and over again is he takes us to the mountaintop, the majestic mountaintop, and then he gets it down to the mundane and what it actually looks like in our daily life. He talks about the poetry, but then he talks about the the plumbing and what that is actually going to be in our life. And as Pastor Eric and I have been discussing, really what James is doing is that he continues to meddle in our lives, that he continues to dig in. And the book of James is a very difficult book. And without the, the cross of Christ... This book can crush us. The weight of what he's saying, and he continues to talk about these lofty ideas, and then he brings it down into what it actually looks like and sounds like and feels like in our daily life. And he's going to do that again today. James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, I have entitled this sermon, This or That, This or That. Verse 13, chapter 4 of the book of James. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live And do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather together once again in your name. Father, we're thankful that we can gather in community to sing your praises. And to elevate you through singing, through praying. And now, Father, as we listen to your voice, Father, we thank you that you have already addressed each and every one of us in here through your word today. Father, you're not speaking to us so that we just know more about you. You speak to us so that our life is transformed. That we're changed by the power of your word and the working of your spirit so that our lives are different, so that we're becoming more like you each and every day. And so, Father, help us to be attentive here over the next few minutes as we spend some time looking into your word. And if you would, take a moment and pray silently to yourself and ask God to speak directly into your life, to give you the strength and the power to put into practice what he says to you here this morning. And if you would, take a moment and pray for me, that God would continue to use me as a tool in his hand as we recognize God as the true and only teacher. Father, as we prayed earlier, you are the Father of lights, the giver of all good gifts. 
And we recognize that the greatest gift that you gave us is your written word. Father, allow this not to just be another Sunday where your word passes between our ears, but allow your word, your voice, your commands to seep into our soul, to change our DNA, to make us less of ourselves and more like you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up playing soccer. By the time I was four years old, I was already playing soccer. My father was one of my coaches. And as I played, I was goalie for about eight years, for the first eight years of me playing soccer. By the time I hit 12 years old, I was really bored playing the goalkeeper position because my team was really good. I mean, they were so good that I was actually ranked in the top three goalies in the entire state of Colorado at that age. And it was really because my team was so good. Rarely did the ball ever come across half field. I remember playing goalie. I would be sitting there on the ground, picking the grass up and throwing it in the air to see which way the wind was blowing. I remember at five, six years old, leaning up against the goal post and just waiting for the ball, waiting for some action to take place. And so when I turned 12, that's about the age that you stop playing recreation soccer and you start playing competitive, I decided at that moment that I wanted to play out in the field. And so what that meant is that I was about eight years behind all of my friends in the skill level that it takes to play in the field. And so after the tryouts for this team took place, I did not make the team. And there was one spot left on the team at the very far end of the bench that you would never, ever see the playing field. And there were three of us that were fighting for that. So we had this separate uh, little tryout for the three of us to make this one spot at the end of the bench. And I, after that weekend, I actually made the team only because I think my dad was one of the coaches. And that I had been on this team for eight years. I had just been playing goalie. So they brought me on so I could sit at the end of the bench. This is not what it did. I did not show up to that first practice with a bunch of swagger. And being like, yeah, look at me. I'm on the team. No, I knew what it took. I knew the trial that I went through and the extra tryout that it took to make the team. And so I came in with humility. That's what James is saying to us today. He's wanting us to examine our life and to take a real look at what's going on in our life. And when we take an actual look of what's happening and what's going on in our life, it shouldn't give us the swagger that we know what's happening, we know what's going to take place, and that we move with this authority in and of ourself. But what he's saying is that we should continue to look to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Verse 13, James says, come now. I love this language. Circle, highlight, underline this Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This language, come now, is really uh, modern English. You could say, come on, man. Really? Come on, man. Are you, are you serious? You're, you're going to go into such and such a place. You're going to go into such and such a town, and you're going to make a profit. You're going to do it in your own strength, your own ability, your own education. Really? Come on, is what he's saying. And what he's really wanting to do, even though it seems like an abrupt turn, he's not wanting us to forget last week and the week before and the verses that came before this and the verses that it's sitting in. He's wanting us to remember that what he's talking about here, this majestic mountaintop and the mundane of life are not as separate as we think that it is. 
that it's actually together. The, the, the poetry and the plumbing are actually closer than we think. Heaven and earth is actually a reality that is mixed together. And so what he's warning us about here right off the bat is not to compartmentalize our spirituality. I think that the, most people in here, those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, and that we place Jesus as the King of Kings on the throne and the Lord of all of our life, we probably have some sort of time each and every day that we spend with God. Maybe you're the type of person that you wake up, you get yourself ready for work, you head out the door, and on your way to work, you don't turn the radio on because you just spend that time with God in silence as you're driving and, and listening for his voice and telling him what's going on. Maybe you're the type of person that your knees are the first thing to hit the ground when you wake up. Maybe you slither out of bed like a snake so that your knees can hit the ground first, so you can just start praying. And you give God an hour of your day before you even start anything else. What he's saying is don't compartmentalize that. Don't leave your prayer in your prayer closet. He's saying that what you need to do is this needs to be part of your everyday life. And that when we compartmentalize this spiritual walk with Christ and what we do on the earth, he's saying again to us, come on, man, really? Is this what you're doing? And so what he's saying here, and you can write this down, that making presumptuous plans in pursuit of a temporal prophet is sin. Making presumptuous plans in pursuit of a temporal prophet is sin. This is to act without the authority of God. And this presumption here we see in Psalms 19. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It's going to be on the screen for you here. Psalms 19.13. This is David. And he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is anything that we do in our own authority without the authorization of God. Anything that we do in our own authority without God's authorization is the sin of presumption. Just presuming that God is wanting that, God is in control, and that he's the one guiding and directing this. Really what James is saying here is that everything in our life, everything, not most things, not some things, but everything in our life either brings rewards or remorse. Every action, every thought, every feeling, everything that we enter into either brings an eternal reward or it brings this earthly remorse, having no eternal value. That everything we do either echoes in eternity or it falls to the ground. There's no gray area. When Ginger and I were early on in our marriage, and we had one kid at this time, we had a lot of car issues. We continued to buy these used cars over and over again. And we would get them for a really good deal and a great price. Except we'd end up pouring a lot of money into them every month because they'd be breaking down. I remember a guy at our church that we served at about, I don't know, I think this was like 14 years ago. He owned a used car lot and once again we had car issues. So we went to the car lot and we showed up and we thought we were going to go and look around the car lot to find a car that we liked. And when we showed up, he had this beautiful Land Rover sitting there running. And he was like, why don't you just take the car for the weekend and see if you like it. It was this V8. It had this low rumble to it. And I don't think there's a person on the planet that didn't love what it sounded like when it started up. It just had this low, deep rumble. And people knew when you were coming. So we ended up buying that car. And I just remember like six months into this having buyer's remorse like none other. 
is that we couldn't believe that we spent more money on another car and we continued to pour money into it over and over and over until one day the engine literally blew up, caught fire. Thankfully, none of the family was hurt. And we ended up having to sell it for junk parts. Everything in this life either brings reward or it leads to remorse in our life. And James wants us to understand that the mountaintop experience and the mundane of life should not be separated out, but that it should be brought together. And really what he's trying to get us to do is he's trying to get us to look in every situation towards heaven. I love this passage in Second Chronicles. It'll be on the screen for you here. It says, our God will you not execute judgment on them, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So what he's wanting us to see here is to to continue to put our eyes on God. And he's saying that these rewards or this remorse in life comes down to the perspective that we have. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. James is actually being really gracious with us here. He's saying that you don't know what tomorrow brings. And so you shouldn't walk around with this swagger as if you do. I think that most of us, if not all of us, fall into one of two categories. That as you think about your week, today being Sunday, you have Monday, tomorrow, getting back to work or whatever your rhythm is, you either have a very detailed plan of what's going to take place over this next week. Maybe every hour of your day is completely figured out. You know exactly what you're going to be doing. You know who's doing what and when. Or you're the type of person that has kind of like this broad idea of the results that you need to have at the end of the week. And that you know kind of what needs to take place, but you're still driving in a certain direction to make sure that it gets done. And what he's saying here is you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And he's being gracious because we don't actually know what's going to take place in the next five minutes. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 30 seconds. We don't really get what the future holds. I mean, Ginger and I, today, after church, we're going to eventually gather our kids. We're going to go home in two different cars. We're going to feed them some sort of substance that hopefully is healthy for them. And then we're going to try and convince our kids to have an hour of quiet time so that we can take a nap on a 75-degree day, right? Now, I have no idea if any of this is actually going to happen. I have plans to take a nap this afternoon, but I don't know what the future holds. And that's what James is trying to get us to understand. You make plans, but you have no clue what is actually going on. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to direct our eyes heavenward in all that we do. This is what I mean. I did this illustration. I think that I did this illustration Uh, The first illustration I ever did. Except that I did it a little bit differently the first time I did it. The first time I did this, I was a student pastor. And I remember when they asked me to do, uh, to preach the main stage for the first time. And so what I did is I uh, strung duct tape across the entire back of the stage. And then uh, I thought it was going to stay there because it's duct tape and it's going to stick to everything. But it didn't, so I had to have two people from the congregation come up and hold the duct tape for only about 30 minutes. It's awesome. So I saw this illustration online. I'm like, that's a better way to do this illustration. 
So what you have to imagine is that this rope here actually goes on into eternity. There's no end. So what you have to do is pretend in your mind that the rope does not end over there at the stairwell, right? That this rope actually goes on and it can wrap around the earth in infinite number of times. And what James is trying to get us to understand is that our life in the present here is like this pink area of this rope. That we have maybe 80, 100 years, maybe a little bit more than that at best. And we focus so much of our time on this little pink area of all of eternity. That we're consumed with this time, this frame, this little tiny area of all of eternity. Because you know that all of us in here, no matter what we believe, that our souls go into eternity, right? That whether you know Jesus Christ or not, that our souls go on forever. Either we spend eternity with God or we spend eternity away from God where the worm doesn't die, where there's gnashing of teeth. And we spend so much of our life focused on this little pink area of all of eternity. And here's the crazy thing is that we spend the majority of this time right here, like the first three and a half inches of this, making sure that the last inch and a half of this pink is really good. We spend so much time focused on the first three quarters of our life just to make sure that this last little bit of this pink area of all of eternity is good and really good. And what James is saying is this ought not be. Is that we need to have vertical vision. And we need to look up. And that's what James is asking us to do. This passage here, what he says here is we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. My guess is that most of us here in this room, most of the people within the sound of my voice, when things aren't going well, this is when you hit your knees. When you lose your job, when you're having trouble with the pregnancy, when you're having trouble in life, that's when we go to God. That verse in, in Chronicles said, when I don't know what to do, my eyes are on you. What James is saying here is that when we do know what to do, our eyes are on you. He's trying to get us to understand that it's not just in the bad, it's not just in the struggle, it's not just in the pain. But it's in the good, it's in the celebration, it's in the joy. Because when you know what to do, when you have a plan, when you understand what step to take, danger, danger, danger. Because this, even as believers, as the church, in a community, individually, this is when we tend to step. Because we've done it before. And that's what he's trying to get us to understand here. Look in verse 13 again. He says, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. We've done it before. We can do it again. Now what you have to understand and what James is not saying here, he's not saying that a profit is bad. He's not saying that planning is bad. All you have to do is go to the book of Proverbs and you can see over and over again in there that the book of Proverbs tells us that planning is really good. Making a profit is really good. He's not trying to say that there's anything wrong with making a profit or making a plan. Actually, in Proverbs, we know that a fool goes and sets out to create a building, to build a structure, and doesn't actually plan it out to the end so you get halfway through and you don't have money to finish the plan. That's the fool. So there's nothing wrong there. What he's saying here is are you inviting God into the picture? 
Are you inviting God into your planning? If the Lord wills, write this down. The problem is planning anything without asking God's permission. The problem is planning anything without asking God's permission. When we pray, we declare our dependence on God. When we seek the face of the Lord, we're saying, God, I can't do this without you. When we don't pray, we're declaring our independence from the creator of the universe. When we don't ask, when we don't seek, when we don't pray, we're saying, God, I don't need your help in this moment. I don't need you. And what he's actually asking us to do is to plan, to be really good at planning, to make a profit, to make great profits, but to invite God into that situation and pray our way through. George Mueller was known for the work that he did in orphanages and that it's said that he helped over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. And it says that he helped them in their education to the point where the people around them in England were upset at the work that he was doing because he was educating them beyond their birthright. James Mueller was known for his prayer life. It's been said that he did nothing without prayer and that he had to rely on God. There was a time when he was uh, working in an orphanage and there were 300 kids there and they didn't have any food for breakfast. And so he woke up early in the morning before the sun ever came up and he started praying, God, I have no idea how you're going to provide this, but all of these kids need to eat this morning. And so he went to breakfast as the kids were gathering in the cafeteria and in great faith he prayed and he blessed the food. When he said amen, the story goes that there was a knock at the door and there was a baker there. And what he said is God woke me up early this morning and said, you're going to make more bread than you can sell today. And so I've brought it here. Is there any chance that you guys can use the bread? And it fed all 300 kids. And then after that, there was another knock at the door, and it was the milkman. And he said, my cart broke down, and it's going to take so long for me to fix this, all the milk's going to go bad. Can you guys use the milk? And so they had the bread. They had the milk that they needed. What God is wanting us to do, what James is saying here, and you can write this down, is he's asking us to have vertical vision that we continue to keep our eyes on Jesus in everything that we do. Jonathan Edwards prayed, Oh Lord, please stamp my eyeballs with eternity. What a great prayer. That the lens that he would see everything through was this lens of an eternal perspective instead of the here and now. It's interesting to me that it takes 53 chapters in the Bible for God to tell us his name. In Exodus 3, you guys know the story. Moses is going along watching his father-in-law's sheep. He looks over, he sees a bush that's on fire that's not that crazy in the desert. What catches his attention is that the fire and the bush, the bush is not being consumed by the fire. So he goes over, God says, take off your shoes, you're walking on holy ground. This is where he tells him, you're going to go and deliver my people out of the slavery and they're going to walk out of this. And so Moses says, okay, if I'm going to do this, what's your name? Who should I tell them sent me? And God says, I am that I am. It's, it's interesting that even though he's going to save his people, he doesn't say, oh, my name is Savior. Even though he's going to deliver his people, he doesn't say, my name is Deliverer. This I am that I am is like this blank check. That no matter what we're going through, what we're struggling with, what's happening in our life, I am that I am is sufficient. Are you poor? I am that I am is rich. Are you troubled? 
I am that I am is peace. Are you struggling in life? I am that I am understands and is compassionate. This is who we rely on in our life as believers. It's not just come and gather on Sundays and let's do church. No, it's this lifestyle, this rhythm of being with God that we continue to see the mountaintop and the mundane, the poetry and the plumbing that combines together and that it's not so compartmentalized. That how we live our life is living this life on earth for eternal rewards. And that that's what God is asking us to do. That's what James is saying right here. So he's saying, look up, have vertical vision. But these followers of Jesus were acting as if death did not exist and they didn't understand the brevity of life. Verse 15, he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or we will do that. I have so much to say about this passage. I hear this all the time. That it seems like what James is saying here is everything that you say in life, you should just add this caveat to the end of it and say, if the Lord wills. Right? That's not exactly what James is saying. We did these uh, high school uh, camps, these winter camps, these weekend camps, and uh, we would organize like 15 different church coming. Uh, coming together, and we would have about 750 to 1,000 kids uh, come to this weekend experience. And there was this time that we decided to bring in a guest speaker and have him speak. And I remember we were about two months out from the camp starting, and we had sent him the framework of what we would like him to speak on as the preacher of the camp. We told him the theme of what was going to be happening, uh, giving him the guidance and the directions. Really, we set the, the railroad ties for him and let him preach however he wanted. Well, we're sitting in this meeting and asking him questions. And every time we asked him a question, his response was, if the Lord wills. And I think that this young man was humble in doing this. But we would ask him questions like, hey, are you able to show up on this day at this time and get a mic check if the Lord wills? <laughs> like, hey, man, I know that we should seek the Lord's will in this. What I'm asking is, are you willing? <laughs> are you willing? And I think a lot of times when we hear this, what's going on is people haven't prayed, haven't thought about it for a single second. I'm like, well, I don't really know. I don't know if that's God's will. What James is saying here is we actually know a ton of what God wills. We understand that Jesus makes commands in the New Testament. I think a lot of times we think that Jesus is, is meek and mild and he makes suggestions for living a good life. We think that Jesus is this guy walking around on the beach with this really nice long hair and a beauty pageant sash. And he's just saying, here are some really nice things that you could do in your life. That's not true. Our God, Jesus, he makes very clear commands. He's commanding us to walk with him. He's commanding us in how we should live our lives. And this is what James is driving towards in this moment. And these commands that he gives us, and you can write them down, these commands to obey are invitations to the king's court. These commands that we're called to obey is an invitation to join the king in what he's doing. And I think something that we need to understand in this is that these commands that God gives us is an invitation to life and life to the fullest. My son understood this a couple weeks ago. Our kids are always wanting to play outside now because the weather is so good. And they were out in the front yard and there were a bunch of the neighbor kids over. And I don't know what it is about every place we live. I think it's just being a parent of young kids. It feels like to me, it feels like to me, 
that everybody, at least 50% or more of the people that drive by our house, drive way too fast. <laughs> and so all the time I'm trying to figure out what can I do for the people that are like driving way too fast and have no idea that they should slow down because there's no way that they can actually see everything that's going on. So our kids are playing basketball and there's this car uh, driving by us and one of the basketballs hits the rim total brick shot, and it rolls out into the street, and the lady is waving at all the kids who's driving the car, but she doesn't realize that the ball is rolling right in front of her car. Her car hits it with her left front tire. It explodes. It makes this explosion like a cannon. I think she felt like her car, like, blew up. She slams on the brake. She rolls down the window. She apologizes uh, that she didn't see the ball rolling out into the street. She was so sorry and sad that she did that that she actually came back like an hour later and had bought us a new basketball, which we didn't need because we have thousands of those basketballs, right? Now, when the reality took place was a couple days ago when we were playing basketball again, and my son, who's six years old now, he remembered what happened, and he said, Dad, do you remember how loud that was when the ball got hit by the car? And me trying to be a good father and trying to teach him a lesson, I said, yeah, actually, you would actually explode louder than that if you got hit by a car. <laughs> His eyes were, like, so big. And I was like, yeah, like, that's why we tell you, that's why we command you, do not run into the street. Because that command is an invitation to life and more life. And what Jesus is telling us, what James is saying here, is this idea of obeying God, the commander our Lord, the leader of our life, it's an invitation into more and more life with him. What he's trying to get us to understand, and you can write this down, is develop dependence on the designer. These commands help us develop dependence on the designer. What he's saying as God is the designer, God is our designer, is that we should develop an absolute dependence on him. Not just when we don't know what to do, but especially when we do know what God is calling us to do. And that's what James is driving to here. It's good to make plans. Proverbs tells us that we prepare the horse for battle, but the victory is the Lord's. This is how we should live our life as believers. That we prepare the horse for battle, but the victory is God's. Everything that we do, we understand that it's part of a bigger picture. We have vertical eyes. We have eternity stamped on our eyeballs so that everything that we see has very little to do with what we actually can touch and feel here in this world. And it's awesome that what this says here in this passage in Proverbs, it doesn't say you prepare the kitten for battle because a kitten would not be great to ride into battle on. It's saying that we have uh, plans that we're supposed to make and that we should make good plans. We should choose a horse to ride into battle on and not a kitten because the kitten is not going to be helpful. And so we make wise choices. And then we have to prepare that horse for battle. We actually have to get it ready for the war so that it doesn't get spooked at every noise and sound. But then we have this perspective that God is the victor and that he's actually controlling. He's actually leading us to go in this direction. Again, verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. My question to you is, what is your this and what is your that? What is this that you're not inviting God into? What is that that you haven't asked God, that you are presuming his plan and his will? 
My guess is in a room like this that most of us with the struggle, with the big decisions, we're inviting God in. My question to you is what is this, what is that that you have not allowed God to come into your planning? It's in the this and in the that that God should be in our plans. To help us understand this, it will be on the screen for you. Colossians 1, or Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. What he's saying is, if you're saved, if you're an apprentice of Jesus. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What he's saying is in everything. Because your life, all that you are, and everything you have is Christ's. So what he's driving at, what James is trying to get us to, is what is your motivation? What is driving you? What is driving you to make plans, to create a calendar? What's driving you to make a profit? What's driving everything in your life? And so when our family wants to go on vacation, it's not bad. Sure, we want to get some rest. Around here, there's a lot of things to be done. It gets really busy. But the motivation is not to get away and get rest only. The motivation is getting away so I can get away with, with my girl. So we can get our kids together. And so that we can focus on the original discipleship plan, which is the family. The motivation is disciples who can make disciples. The motivation of what we do is Christ. More of Christ, less of me. We're vertical focused. We have vertical vision. We have eternity stamped on our eyeballs. And so the way that we steward our money and the money that we have in our household is how we can glorify God the most in every single cent that we have. Every area of my life is about Christ and Christ alone. Not just when I don't know what to do, but when I know exactly what needs to be done. That's when I need to invite God into what's going on in my life. So in the this, in the that, what he's saying here, and write this down, is any action without prayer is arrogance. Any action without prayer is arrogance. He says it here in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We talk so much about this. I mean, that's why we have a prayer night the first Wednesday of every month. We gather together. As Susan was saying during announcements, we call it the most important meeting of the month because it is. Because we have to seek God's face. Because even in the church, which may sound strange, it's really easy to get about doing rather than being. Rather than allowing Christ to work in and through us even as the body of Christ. The temptation is to go out on our own and say, well, we've done it before. We know what to do. We have the experience. We have the education. We know what works in the culture. Instead of seeking the face of God, any action that we take without prayer is absolute arrogance. And here's the thing is it affects the people around us too. When we continue to declare to God that I don't, I don't need you, that I'm independent from you, it actually affects the relationships that we have with the people around us. It affects our relationship with God. Of course, I think we can see that. It affects the relationship we have with the closest people on this planet, our spouses, our kids, our friends, our neighbors, our place of work. It affects everything when we're de continually declaring our dependence from God. And so what he's saying here is invite God into every single situation. Verse 17, and we'll close with this. 
So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, this is sin. This is so interesting. I think a lot of times we see our walk with Christ is, I don't do this, I don't go there, I don't watch that. If really the people around you see being a Christian is, I don't watch rated R movies except for the passion, then we have an issue. If people around you say, well, I don't curse, I don't go, I don't do, and that's what they think Christianity is, that's what they think Christ's life in and through us is, that's just behavior modification. James is going much deeper than that. He's meddling much deeper than that. He's not talking about, hey, don't do the wrong that you know is wrong to do. What he's saying is God is commanding us to step forward and to do what God has commanded us to do. So write this down. We're supposed to obey the revealed commands within God's will. To obey the revealed commands within God's will. The Bible is really clear that God commands us to do certain things. The written word of God is very clear on what we should be doing. A lot of times this has been called the sin of omission. That, yeah, we're really good as we grow with Christ, as he's changing our desire that we stop doing the wrong things. But what James is saying here is, no, 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 that's not the life of a follower of Jesus. That's not the apprentice of Jesus Christ. That's not an ambassador of God. The ambassador of God steps into, by faith, with conviction, from your heart, into the things that we're supposed to be doing. Now, it's interesting that the revealed will and nature of God is very clear in Scripture, but not everything is stated in Scripture. This is what I mean. About 12 years ago, Ginger and I were serving at the first church that we were at, and we, it became very clear that it was time for us to leave that church. Now, what we didn't know is where God was calling us. Four days, within four days after talking to the head elder that we were leaving, we had no plans. I thought I was going back into construction and not into ministry. I got three different phone calls over the next four days from three different churches. All of them saying the exact same thing. All of them saying, hey, Shannon, we know that you're really happy where you're at. But as we've been praying, we feel that you would uh, fit really well here. One was in Castle Rock. One was in Aurora. And one was in Littleton. And so what did Ginger and I do? We set to praying. We got on our faces. And we prayed like crazy because we didn't know what to do. And so we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And here's the thing. I don't know if you know this. But in the Bible... I could not find Aurora, Castle Rock, or Littleton. I even looked in the concordance. I couldn't find those cities. And so we had to pray and we had to trust. And we, from conviction, had to take a step of faith in a direction. And we felt like God was calling us to Littleton, a, ch a church over there. And I will say this with certainty to you right now. That when we took that step of faith to go there, it wasn't for more money because it wasn't. It wasn't for a better platform because it wasn't. It was actually a step down. I was a pastor and then was not a pastor in the next role. And it was not for more money. We took that step, step of faith and we did not know for sure if that's what God was calling us to. We had conviction in our heart and we believed, we thought that this was what God was doing. People in our life were mixed in this. Why would you do that? Why are you going there? Some were like, well, this seems good. That seems great. But we trusted God. After serving that church for almost seven years, we can look back and say, that was God's plan. That was God's will for us. What James is saying here 
is there are some very clear instructions for how we live as a believer. And he's saying, quit omitting these from your life. We don't have to wonder if we should share the gospel with every single person in our life. The Bible tells us that we should go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that we've been taught. And the Spirit of God is with us to be able to do this. We don't have to wonder if we're supposed to love God and love our neighbors. We don't have to wonder if we're supposed to serve one another in the church, bear one another's burdens, wash each other's feet. There's over 50 one another's of what we're supposed to be doing as a church. And what James is saying here is it's not good enough, follower of Christ, to just live a life of not doing the wrong that you know is wrong to do. That we're actually supposed to be stepping forward and living out these commands that Jesus gives us. They're not suggestions. That they are commands that we do this. And that when we step into that, all of a sudden we realize this is an invitation to be with the creator of the universe. Because he's actually ahead of us already doing it. He's already putting it into practice. He's already advancing the kingdom. He's already loving. He's already serving. He's already carrying the burdens. And what he's asking us to do is to be obedient to those. And that's what James is saying here in this passage, is it's not enough. It's far more invasive than just not doing the wrong things. So how do we do this? How do we put this into practice? Well, the first thing you can do is to acknowledge arrogance. Acknowledge your arrogance. Verse 13 and 14, it's really clear. That when we walk around with this swagger in our life, acting like we know what's going to happen in the next five minutes, that is absolute arrogance in our life. And that we need to be able to identify the areas in our life that we're doing in our own strength, our own ability, our own way, without inviting God into. And what I would say is that most of the big situations in life that we don't know what to do, as followers of Jesus, we probably are seeking the face of God. What we're not doing is the things that we've done over and over again. We're not inviting God into those situations. There's a couple ways to be able to know if you're arrogant, if you're walking in pride and you're pompous. If you wear the cape in every situation of your life, if everybody has to bow down to everything you say and the way you do things, you're pompous. That's not a maybe. That's not a you might be. (laughs) That's pride. That's arrogance. When you're sitting around a table with people and you have to have the final word or you have to be the expert in every situation, that's arrogant. That's pride. I remember this was uh, over a year ago. We were sitting around a table over at Ginger's family's house. And her brother uh, went to the Air Force Academy. He flew for the Air Force until he retired a lieutenant colonel. And now he flies for an airline. And he was talking to us about a couple of these flights that he had done. There was actually somebody there who will remain nameless who started talking as if they were the expert at flying. Talking about thrust and lift and all of a sudden taking control of the situation. I don't even know if this person's ever been on a plane. I want to be like, hey, can you be quiet and let the pilot talk? I want to hear what he has to say. I think there's times that we sit around, there's actually a medical doctor in the room who spent their life studying a certain topic, and then we want to act as if we're the expert. That's arrogance. When you wear the cape and everybody has to listen to you, you have to have the final word, you know that you're walking in arrogance. What the Bible talks about is is the body of Christ. And these steps towards humility is realizing that other people actually can have the final word, that other people can be the expert. 
that other people actually have gifts and abilities that I don't have and that we actually need one another. Number two, and I think that if you have humility, you can do this. Ask for vertical vision. Jonathan Edwards' prayer is amazing. God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Don't let me look at anything in this life without seeing it through the lens of all of eternity. Don't focus, don't be consumed on the 80 years that we have here. Definitely don't be so consumed with the 60 years you have to make your final 20 years really great. Look at eternity. Look at the eternal perspective. Leaving a legacy so that our kids and our grandkids can have a good life is very, very small thinking. And it's not inviting the King of kings and the Lord of lords into every area of your life. And then finally, obey God. It's very clear. It's not good enough just to be a good person and not do what the people around us think is wrong. We're supposed to be obedient to God. And I think a lot of times what we do is we just convolute this and it gets very confusing. We have the the 50 plus one another's in scripture. What is God calling me to do? We have the great commandment. We have the commission, the great commission of God. What are we supposed to do? And so write this down. Obedience is just doing this. Do the next right thing that you know is right to do. Do the next right thing that you know is right to do. We talk about this a lot in here. That God is calling us to do the righteous. And really it's just one step at a time. That the most difficult step you'll ever take in faith is always the next step. And all you have to do is take the next step and the next step and the next step. Do the next right thing that you know is right to do. Now here's the thing and I'll close with this. Being obedient to God. The commands in scripture. What he's commanding us to do, not suggesting, to be obedient to God is impossible. Without God, without God's spirit, without God's word, and without God's people. That you'll never be able to do the next right thing that you know is right to do in your own strength for it to have any eternal rewards rather than earthly remorse. And what James is very specifically saying here is pray. Pray your way all the way through every second of every day. Pray, pray, pray. Unceasing, unconditionally, continue to pray. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come into a place like this and to allow your voice to speak so strong to us through the power of of your written word. Father, your word is so clear in so many areas of our life. Father, help us to be a people that understand your word. Help us to be a people who seek you through your word. Help us to be a people who ask your spirit that dwells inside of us to apply your word into our lives. Father, help us not just to do the wrong that we know is wrong to do, but help us to take steps forward. Help us to be obedient to your voice. Help us to invite you into every area of our life. And so, Father, in all of that, what we're saying is help us to humble ourselves so that we can walk in obedience to you, so that your planning and your profit is clearly seen in and through our lives. In Jesus' name.